0: Hello, welcome to the Made for Greatness podcast, the podcast where we seek to unpack what it means to be made for the greatness of God himself. Thank you so much for being here today. And this episode, I'm going to finish up a recording that was done a couple of weeks ago at a retreat that I was asked to help out with. And the theme of the retreat is Rekindle the Flame. It's something that my wife and I are working on to develop and figure out where God is leading us in this regard and they like the message and so I was given this terrific opportunity to speak at a Knights of Columbus retreat and I did it with a friend of mine a new friend and I just met him a few months ago a priest a Ukrainian Catholic priest a good man and so he did my wife's half and with his own flavor his own personality his own spin and and I did my half and you know what Looking back in hindsight, I wish I would have recorded what he was saying. I didn't. I just recorded myself and because uh, he had some really, really good stuff to share. And it was such a heartfelt event that the men were really sharing um, what was going on in, in the deepest part of their lives. And when I gauge how successful an event is going, a men's event, whether it's a retreat or or, or just a one of our regular monthly gatherings called, that we call major, Made for Greatest, where we offer confessions and a time of adoration, reflection, and a time of fellowship. And I gauge the success of an evening or the success of a presentation or the fruit of something based on how many people are lined up for confession. And most of our men's events, regular men's events, most of the guys go, which has been a beautiful thing to see. And at this particular event with the Knights of Columbus, it was the first public event since all the COVID lockdowns happened uh, well, I guess it would have been 2019 was would have been the last public event for this I think it was maybe it was 2020 but around that time anyway and the uh, the beautiful thing that I saw was all these men were going to confession and unbeknownst to me father Warren the the gentleman who's working with me that weekend he has the same gauge of the but for him since he's a priest actually hearing the confessions and for him, the quality of these things, like the content, the heartfelt uh, confessing going on in the sacrament celebration. So he said that this is some of the most deepest, most profound confessions that he had heard. And that's such a, a tremendous thing to hear. I think there's probably many reasons why. One, this is one of the first public events these Knights of Columbus people have had together as an organization, a local organization throughout the entire province. And I think really, I think that all these lockdowns, the fears and everything surrounding, surrounding COVID and uh, all of this stuff is really taking its toll on people's psyche. And I really do feel that that people are ready. You know, we're ready to receive more of God. I think a lot of this stuff made a, made a lot of us realize our need for more of the Holy Spirit in our lives, more of God. But that's the nature of, of public suffering, isn't it? Where if a culture is really wealthy, really successful, um, everything is just going tickety-boo, not a lot of church attendance, not a lot of selfless volunteerism going on. You know, and also that it's also the triggers a, a decline in the longevity of this, of this particular culture. I, I don't think that the world that we're in can sustain itself right now the way things are we're murdering babies left right and center euthanizing our elders we're limiting freedoms all over the world i you know i i find all this stuff very 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 hard to watch and I, and it can't sustain itself for too long that's not the point of tonight. i don't want to get too far into the weeds but there was a part of our presentation that did set the stage based on all of these things happening based on some of these current events and what I want to touch on right now is is one presentation out of this out of 4 that I didn't record I forgot to record it and it was set the world to place. Now the quote is it's from Catherine of Siena and the full quote is if you are what you should be you'll set the whole world to place. She the quote comes from a um, a letter that she wrote to a, lo- a local man named George I believe his name is and there might be a familial relation I'm not sure but from one hand, she knew who this person was and she knew his potential. And she knew that the job that he was being tasked with to be the prince of a local area or the entire country. I can't recall at this moment. I didn't look it up. Um, is that he's fully capable of doing it. All he had to do was just be who he is, and he's gonna set the whole world ablaze, you know. That same call is for us. One of the things we touched on at the at the at the retreat or the event was how shame gets in the way of our dialogue and our relationship with god i won't dive too far into that realm but for this particular talk and i won't dive too far into shame because i talk about it in the other presentations which you'll have a chance to listen to in this particular one though i focus on a little bit on imposter syndrome and imposter syndrome is the idea that if people really knew who you really were they would realize how much of a fraud you are how much of a mistake that that they had made in entrusting you with a thing and so people often um avoid responsibility where you know or they 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 become hyper machismo you know hyper hyper aggressive hyper masculine or they procrastinate you know hyper masculinity really aggressive just to kind of um just to kind of make up or overcompensate for what they feel is lacking and wholeheartedly lacking inside their souls um, they they feel some sometimes um, a comparison comparing themselves to other people, other leaders, other you know historical figures even, uh, and people pleasing doing things that that in in my activity that that would make sure that that they like me you know because of my flaws are so great there's no way that they would not like me or accept me unless I do this thing for them unless I buy them donuts unless I do the dishes in the in the in the coffee room you know unless I do certain things for others they're not going to accept me and to love me and all of this stuff goes into play in imposter syndrome and um there's a lot of research going on right now and how that impacts businesses and success and entrepreneurial success. But look at our spiritual lives. I think so many things can relate from the business world into our into our spiritual lives. And imposter syndrome is no different. You know, look at these five measures. And this is from a blog post by somebody named Melody Wilding or Wilding. She's a, a motivational speaker and a coach. Does some, seems to do some really good stuff. And she comes out with this list of five things. Perfectionism. I, I called it hyper-masculinity. Doing things like super aggressively and just the right way. You know, like here she says, she there's putting pressure on yourself to become the expert. That's kind of how I see this hyper-masculinity thing. I digress and I'm not the expert she is. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to let go of this. I'm just going to read this a little bit. Perfectionism is one of these marks. Procrastination. Um, comparison and overcompensating and people-pleasing. So she has these markers. And so when we think about our spiritual lives. What are some things that are spiritualized that I myself do where imposter syndrome can be part of the thing? And if one, for me, is shame um, keeps me away from seeing God's face. With presentations here you'll listen to if you get it, if you want to, talk about that. Um, people-pleasing or God-pleasing, you know, doing things the right way at the right time. Uh, not in a virtue sense, not in the correct sense, but in a way to overcompensate for my for my failings, for my for my sinfulness, you know, or my eagerness to sin. And what does God do? He calls us nonetheless, and He embraces us nonetheless, and He wants us to be here nonetheless. In our very DNA is God's plan for our lives. You think of that for a second. You know, it's no accident that we're here alive in this time of history. I certainly don't think so. For me to be here, my personality, my dispositions, um, my sex, my eye color, hair color, all of this stuff led um, my wife to, I don't know, be be attracted to me. You know, I I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But I am here for a reason. And you're here for a reason in history. And so I think that's a very encouraging concept to understand that, God has a plan, and nothing can, nothing can stop his plan from working. Within his plan, of course, there's deviations and things, but this plan, if you think of our DNA as an example, our DNA took thousands of years to make. And on top of our DNA, our life events while we we're growing up as babies, and, and youths, and young adults, and adults. Our life events shaped who we are today and most of that is probably god's will some of that is not some of it's definitely not god's will but god allows these things to happen so he can write a straight with a crooked line so he can advance his kingdom because really that's our call as as catholics as baptized christians our call our responsibility our our one job to do is advancing the kingdom of our father acting in the name of Jesus, acting in the power of the Holy Spirit and advancing the kingdom of God throughout the entire world. That, my friends, is our one job that we got to do. And this time in history, it's no accident that we're here and that we're somehow, we're the right people to be here to advance his kingdom in the right way that he wants it to be advanced. Yeah, we've been bruised along the way. We've been we've been torn. We've been tattered. We've been broken in some, in many I'm broken in many cases, but we're still here and he still has a plan and he's not going to stop using his plan just because I deviated at one point in my life. He's still going to try his best to make his plan work so that we can advance his kingdom in this time of history. And I really do think that's a very beautiful thing to understand. And so when when we think of this quote from Catherine of Siena, if you are who you should be, you will set the whole world ablaze just being who we are in our very core, you know, allowing our personalities to shine, allowing our dispositions, allowing our, you know, by dispositions, I mean our our likes, our dislikes, the way we talk, the way we act, all of these things, being who we should be, we will set the whole world ablaze. We'll be able to advance God's kingdom the way that He wants us to advance it. And there's, there's a quote here that, from my journal I was looking at earlier today, I'm trying to think of some things to say in this intro because I'm really not good at this podcasting stuff. But it's Genesis chapter 5, 17, verse 16, and it's walk before me, walk before the Lord, and be blameless. Now, if we are who we should be, we're walking before the Lord and we're being blameless. But what does this word blameless mean? It doesn't just mean. Blameless in the sense that I've never done a single thing wrong, never deviated from God's plan at one single of an iota. You know, not one iota have I ever deviated from God's plan in my life. That's not what this word means. Blameless, the root of it is tummy em. And it, the root of it means integrity, truth, and sincerity. To walk blameless before our God means to walk with integrity, with truth, and sincerity. And in this quote of context of Catherine Siena, if we are who we should be, walking in integrity, truth, and sincerity, um, not masking, not pretending I am, I am who I'm not, not putting a brave face before God, not even avoiding His face, walking before Him in integrity, truth, and sincerity, walking with God in all of my imperfections will set the world a place. I don't need to be somebody else to do that. I need to be who God made me to be. Now, I'm going to end there. This is not the presentation that I gave at the retreat, but the event, but um, this will do. I'm, I'm going to be done playing around with this episode. I've recorded and deleted it so many times. I just can't seem to get it quite right. That's okay. I'm going to let it go and we'll let God do his thing. And you know what? I hope that you get something out of this. I hope that somehow this episode can glorify God. So, thank you so much for being here. If you're on anchor.fm, then you can skip ahead to each uh, chapter, each presentation. There's three other presentations. And if you're on Spotify or if you're on iTunes or another platform, you won't be able to skip ahead to the other chapters. Um, but each one is a roughly 15 minutes in length. So, anyway, first one is Reckless Love of God. The second is Charcoal Fires. And the third is Refuse God Nothing. And when we do this at an event, the fourth is set the world ablaze god bless you i'm praying for you and thank you so much for being here today okay my wife and I met at a Catholic Bible school in Alberta called John Paul II Bible School. I, uh, I was on a missionary team for a few years, and then I'd gone to the seminary and got kicked out of the seminary and went back to this Bible school area, and I worked on their farm. They had some chickens and some horses that I was tasked with taking care of. And um, I met Kara at one of the lunches, and uh, she didn't remember this, but I actually met her a few years prior. I was on a, one of these mission trips I was on, and I stayed at her house here in Regina. But She didn't remember me, but I remembered her, which is kind of interesting. And so when we met again in in the Radway area of uh, Alberta, uh, I fell in love right away for her. It took a little while to fall in love with a schmuck like me, but she eventually did. And we got married in 2003, and we have uh, three kids. We moved from Edmonton to Regina. I used to work as a carpenter. After um, my last little missionary tour was in Ireland in 2001, 2000, and um, uh, I went to work as a carpenter, got injured on the job, and I couldn't do that anymore. I had to go back to school, but we had no money. I had no disability insurance, nothing like that, so I had to go back to school and racked up a ton of debt, unfortunately. And, but thank be to God, her mom and her dad put us up for next to nothing here in Regina. So that's what brought us to Regina. This uh, rekind of the flame thing really started for Kara and I during this whole COVID stuff. The past couple years have been extremely difficult for a lot of people, some more than others and and some, but I think most of us have all been struggling. And it really struck me that um, I've always kind of felt that why don't we live more like the early church did? You know, we see all these signs and wonders and miracles in the early church. We see all these things happening throughout all of church history, but not so much here. It, not here as in Regina, but in the West, in Western Hemisphere. It doesn't really happen here. And I've always been very convicted that, well, why not? What's preventing this thing from happening? And uh, in 2020, in the summer of 2020, when everyone was starting the renovation projects at home, I'm not sure if you guys did the same thing. I know my wife and I did. We teared up our backyard because our deck fell apart and we had to, which is a good excuse to tear it up. And we started developing our backyard. And I remember this one particular time I was... Setting in these the stones and in the stones had this special kind of sand that as soon as you wet this sand, it gets super hard. Has anybody ever run into that sand before? It's really, it's really good, but you've got to be very careful it doesn't get wet. So this one particular day, I was just listening to some music. I was listening to a song by, uh, called Rescue Me. And all of a sudden, the clouds were kind of rolling in and it was getting darker and darker. And I said, oh, dear Lord please. <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to fill up the sand. I'm probably, I want, I'm probably three quarters of the way left to go. And it starts dripping. And I, and I, and I say, okay, hang on here. Dear Jesus, you can do all things. You've created the world out of nothing. You are the God of the molecules. There's nothing that you can't do. I ask you, Jesus, to please stop this rain. And it's cool. I get emotional about this. The, the, the second I finish that prayer, the chorus of the song comes on, which is a beautiful chorus. And the rain above me stops. And all around me in the neighborhood, it's continuing to rain. And, and it struck me that God could do this stuff. This isn't something that he needed me to do, but he can do these things through us. Just what's preventing us from working with his grace in our lives? We worship and we serve the God of the molecules, you guys. And yet we limit him to just a little bit of grace in our lives. I think there's there's several reasons why we, we are like that with our faith life, with our relationship with God. And there's probably a million of them that we could talk about today. Today I just want to focus on one thing. I think there's one obstacle for us working and cooperating with God's grace in our lives, and that's shame. I think shame is one of the biggest obstacles that we've got to overcome. And, and every one of us experience shame in different ways, you know? We live in a society that performs, don't we? Everything that we've got to do is a performance for others, and for ourselves, and for God, for our parents, for whomever it was that we were performing to, we performed to it. And for myself, shame is a big motivating factor or a demotivating factor in my life. I know when I make a mistake, the first thing I want to do for my wife, for example, if I make a mistake with her, first thing that I want to do is I want to avoid her gaze. First thing I want to do, I want to not going to the kitchen, not going to the living room. Wherever she is, I don't want to be because I just screwed up because I'm, you know, I screw up sometimes. It's the same with my faith. When I sin, when I sin, no matter what sin that might be, whether it's lust or pride or my ego, I'm just feeding my ego all day, the first thing that I, that I avoid is God's face. And what do I mean by that? It's not like I can see his face like you can see my face. But when I, when I sit in prayer, it's a discussion between me and my friend Jesus. It's me, it, this, me. It's a discussion between myself and this God who loves me. But the first thing that I want to do when I feel ashamed of my sins is I just want to avoid Him like crazy. And I think the, one of the there's there's today we're going to talk about four principles of, of getting rid of this shame that prevents God from working in our lives, from rekindling this flame in our lives that He wants that that He wants us to operate within. First one is that we've got to know the, the reckless love of God. What do I mean by that? First of all, I, I know what I don't mean by that. Uh, when I was in high school, for example, I, um, I used to play football and rugby. Football first for a few years and then rugby. And then football got kind of boring, so I quit playing that because rugby's awesome. And, uh, and so when I was playing football, I, uh, I really struggled a lot with my self-image. I still do. But when I was in that, those years of my life, my teenage years, I hated myself and I wanted to die. I never acted out suicidal actions, but my thoughts were consumed by it. I hated myself, and I wanted to die. And so my, my sport playing and football was very reckless. I didn't care who I hurt. I didn't care how I hurt them. I just knew that I wanted to just get all this aggression out. This aggression came from, you know, negative experiences when I was growing up in, at home, in my, in my home life. I, it came from being bullied at school. You know, I, I don't know if any of you have really, can relate to that. But I certainly was bullied at school, and it made a major impact in my life. And it just came from this, this general sense that I'm just not worthy of anything. And so I injured a lot of players. And, and when I was playing in school, it was almost a badge of honor to take somebody off the field, and um, that's how I lived my life in those days. And I didn't care what happened to me, because I just I didn't have anything to live for. And so I, I was a good player, but all, all of a sudden... I got injured. I got some brain damage, brain injury from too many concussions, way too many concussions. That in, the, in those days, nobody concerned, was concerned about concussions. But that's not the recklessness that I'm talking about. This reckless, recklessness that just acts and crushes everything in its way in a negative manner. The reckless love of God is this love that God has for us that doesn't hold anything back. That, that breaks through walls and barriers that we set up ourselves that prevents him from loving us. This reckless love of God bounds through every hill, crushes the mountains, and and raises up the valley so he could be with us because he loves us. That's this love that God has for us. For God, whatever I've done in my high school years, whatever I've done, however I feel about myself, that's not going to stop him from loving me. We have to remember that we are not defined by our failings and our weaknesses, but we're defined by our Father's great love for us. This love for us that's everlasting, this love that is beyond all understanding, this love that encounters us wherever we are in our shame, wherever we are in our fears, wherever we are in our sorrow, that's where Jesus is, because he loves us, because you're his sons. God loves you. What limits our, our experience of God and accepting his love a lot is, is, our, is our upbringing, our parents. Our parents. Our leaders when we're growing up, our mentors when they are growing up, whether they're good or not. And if our parents or, or these role models were abusive, then we see God as a little bit abusive towards us. And we, we expect that, that God is going to treat us the same way that, that they treated us. You know, we have to perform a certain way, do certain things, say certain things in order to be accepted and loved by this being who is all goodness. And that, that's a really big inhibitor to our relationship with God. We have to somehow acknowledge that, yeah. God is love. And I really struggle with that reality of knowing that I am loved. And I have to somehow let go of that reality that I'm familiar with and comfortable with. And God's love for us is, is unconditional. It's life-giving. It's freeing. We just have to be ready to accept it. For God, he's not chalking up lists of our sins so he can point us down and, and shame us. That's not God. That's us. We do that to each other. In our performance society, we do that to each other. God doesn't do that to us. God sees the long game with us. He sees the end of our lives. He sees the middle of our lives. He sees the beginning of our lives. And He's present just the same at every single spot. And He loves us. He sees when I lust. He sees when I'm prideful. And He loves me anyway. He doesn't condemn me, He doesn't kick me to the curb. One of my favorite analogies for this uh, when I was on this, one of the teams I was on was called the Challenge Team. And we talked about chastity to uh, teenagers and young adults. One place that we were at, they thought it'd be funny to call us the Virgin Prunes because there's a, a, a British band called the, uh, the uh, Something Prunes. But anyway, so they, and that was a neat promoter that they had for us. But a side story. One, one of the um, neat analogies that I, that I really appreciate from love that I learned in those days was from a young lady named Mary Beth Benacci. And she had a, this thing called pizza love. And, and she talked about infatuation versus real love. And pizza love is a lot like this. And this is a great way to describe how we see love in our own lives. No matter how old or young we are, we are. this still impacts how we receive God's love to us. So pizza love is really simply described as I love pizza. But I don't love pizza when it's got sardines on it. And you try to, when you're talking to teenagers, you try to be as gross as you possibly can. I know my uncle, for example, he loves peanut butter and salmon sandwiches. So I don't love pizza when it has peanut butter and salad all over the place. I don't love it then, but I love it other times. And we we see God's love for us like the same way that we see pizza. That if I am saying my prayers the right way, if I'm, um, what was that called, Father, when we get down to the ground? What's that prayer called? Prostration or poklon. Poklon. If we do the poklon just perfectly, then God will love us. If we say the rosary the exact same way, that we that we our mother taught us to, then God will love us. That's that pizza love. But whether we can do the full, po- 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 what do you say it again? Poklone. clone. Whether we could do the the correctly or not, is God still going to love us? I'm asking you. Yeah, of course He's going to love us. That does that's, that matters less to Him as far as our, our who we are as a person than it is that we're just connected with a guy. Another thing that a friend of mine sent me the other day is this, just yesterday. I thought it was cool. There's a quote from Pope Benedict XVI. He says, Be afraid neither of the world nor of the future. And this might seem off topic for now, but it's not. I promise. Be afraid neither of the world nor of the future nor of your weaknesses. So if you can't do that prayer, the prostrate the right way, don't be afraid of that. It's okay. The Lord has allowed you to live in this moment of history so that by your faith, His name will continue to resound throughout the world. Be afraid neither of the world nor of the future, nor of your weaknesses. God loves you and he has a plan for you. He he knows your weaknesses. He knows where you make mistakes. He knows where you've fallen. He knows when you get up again. He knows when you fall again. He knows all these things and he loves you anyway and he embraces you and he has a plan for your future. He planned for for your future to be filled with hope. Does something happen, Father? You, you, you know, okay. I'm just queuing up the video. Oh, okay. okay. He has a plan for our future to be filled with hope. And his hope for us is to be like a burning bush. That's his plan for us. And whatever, whatever we do in, in our work, whatever we do in our vocations, uh, at the very core of his call for us is we become like burning bush. I'm going sh- to share with you a story from the book of Exodus. Really quickly. I won't go into the whole thing. You guys are familiar with the story of the burning bush? Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he left his flock in the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but yet it wasn't consumed. God's plan for us is that we will be on fire. That we will be on fire with, with him, with his love for us. Be on fire for the whole world, but that this fire doesn't consume us in a way that it devoids us of our character and our appearance. That burning bush was clearly a bush. In Scripture, it's clear that that Moses knew that it was a bush. There's no way to, to mistake that. It's the same with us. The call that God has for us is that in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our failings, in spite of all these things we may or may not do, He loves us and He calls us and He has a plan for our future to be like a burning bush. This bush that that burns with his fire, with his fire of God, but is not doesn't take away from our character, but embraces it. There's no mistake that that we're here today in this part of history. God's plan is far-reaching. There's actual studies that talk about how uh, the jobs that we we're that we're driven towards, whether it's carpentry or or finance or or service work or. What Father Warren is doing in his vocation. Whatever job that we, are, that we are inclined to do naturally, it's in our very DNA for us to do that job. In our very DNA for us to be inclined to do those things and do those things well. What shapes our DNA? Is our DNA shaped and, and can I shape my own DNA today? No. How long does it take to shape my DNA? Thousands of years. Thousands of years. God had you and mine done thousands of years ago. That you'll be alive today in 2022 to be here today. That's how far-reaching God's plan is for us. And do you think that, do you think that w- with our own weaknesses and our failures that he defines us by those things? No. We do, but God doesn't. So somehow God has a plan for all of history to best for us to be alive in this time of the coronavirus pandemic. Whatever's going on in, in Eastern Europe and all the tragedy that's happening there, we're, we're for there's a, a particular purpose why God has us here today, embedded in our DNA as men, as males, as, as Catholic men, that there's a thing that you and I can do that other people can't do and that we can only do in this time of history because God loves you and that your failings and your weaknesses don't define who you are, but God's love for you does. And we're going to share with you guys a video, a beautiful video about the Samaritan, the, the woman at the well, and this is from a, a a web series called The Chosen. Anybody not heard of The Chosen? That's great that everybody has. I think The Chosen is an excellent series, excellent. And so this is from that particular episode called uh, and where Jesus encounters the woman at the well, and and she herself, as you're watching this thing, and you, and many of you are familiar with the story of the woman at the well. She's very much so defined in her own weaknesses and failings, isn't she? And here in this episode, Jesus doesn't kick her to the curb like we expect him to. And so let's just watch this episode and answer in. And I love the actors in this series. They're so good. Just watch their facial expressions and watch the inflections on their voices. Pay attention to those things. I think it's a very beautiful thing that they're doing. Thank you, Father, for getting ready. Okay, oh, I got to unmute this thing, there you go, oh, that's loud, oof, maybe I'll I'll re-mute it, oh, see if that's any better, if the two of are, is that any better, am I just noisy, I'm going to be just noisy, it's a little, I'll just use that mic. I'll just stick, I'll stay stationary. It's okay. No, that one just needs to be turned it's going to be used. It's okay. Okay. Did this get turned off? I don't know. touch it. Nope. Nope. Good. Okay. Excellent. I mentioned to you briefly of my uh, reckless life. That's opposite of the recklessness of God's love that that knows no bounds, that breaks through every single barrier that may have been put up in our lives to meet us and encounter us because God's name is Emmanuel, God with us. He'll do everything that he possibly can to meet us wherever we possibly are because he loves us for who we are. In our very DNA, we're born to be today. He has his plan for us that's laid out for thousands of years so that you would be alive today and be here today. As a male, as a, as a, you know, our wives are females and we're males and all this stuff has been eons and eons in the making for me to be here today and to communicate with you in the only way that I know how to communicate. I think it's beautiful. And, he, and God does this because he loves us. He loves us. It might sound cheesy or childish to talk about, God loves you. But man, one of the, one of the most common things that, that Archbishop Fulton Sheen would say is, God love you. Most common thing. And one of the most simplest things that we need to understand in our own lives. When I was living that reckless life, I, very similar, very similar backgrounds. I was a drunk most of the time. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of days where I was sober, but um, um, a lot of binge drinking going on in my life. And very big party scene. And uh, my mom, good Irish mother, from Ath- she grew up in Athabasca. She was the firstborn children. Her 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 siblings were the firstborn in Canada, and um, the uh, she coerced me into going to this retreat called Youth 2000. It was a retreat that was run by the Franciscan Friars, of the Renewal. They're based in New York State, and uh, and they live in this. They work live and work in the streets of of the worst places of New York City and uh, and elsewhere throughout the world. And this retreat was centered around Eucharistic adoration, where. In the Latin rite, we have Eucharistic adoration, and it's not common in Ukrainian light rite or other Eastern rites. Where we're centered around this this adoration of, the, of of God Himself, this Emmanuel, who wants to be with us so recklessly that He becomes bread, so that we can be so that we can consume Him. And so, Eucharistic adoration is centered around this reality of God's presence in the, in this holy bread. And so when my mom coerced me into going, and, and uh, she said, oh, no, you said yes that one day, but I don't remember that one day ever happening. And so I, I went, and I was hungover. I was angry. I didn't want to be there. I felt like my mom tricked me into going. And, and it was right on the heels of this brain injury I mentioned, and I, and I couldn't play these sports that I wanted to play. I was scouted to go other places, other colleges, other universities, but I couldn't because my head was not right, still not right. Sorry, Mark, I don't need to disappoint, but... but <laughs> still, yeah, he knows, he knows, he knows. Um, but I, I couldn't do these things, so my very identity of of first time ever being accepted in my life was as a football player and as a rugby player, and I couldn't do those things anymore. And so my very identity was gone. And then now the only thing that I had that I was accepted for was my drunkenness. I could drink anybody under the table, and I was very cool. You know, that's what people would call me as. And so... Um, I showed up to this retreat, angry, hungover, uh, not wanting to be there at all. And in the middle of this place, it's, it's a beautiful retreat center in Alberta called the Fatah House. And in the middle of this place, it has this awesome stained glass window of Jesus and the divine mercy. Have anybody ever seen that image of Jesus, the divine mercy? He's got that two rays of light coming from his chest. And he's standing there and he's got the, underneath his feet is an inscription, Jesus I trust. And you guys ever seen that one? Beautiful. And the stained glass window is, is probably as big as from the stage to the ceiling, and it's massive. And the picture, the, the type of painting that this window is, is you know, those eyes that follow you from point A to point B? You ever see those pictures before? Yeah. So I walk in there, and I see this picture of Jesus staring at me. And, and, and I know that it's a picture, but for some reason, it's really hit me in the heart. And it brought me back to my childhood. I grew up in the charismatic renewal. And in Edmonton, there was a charismatic renewal center in downtown Edmonton that had this picture of Jesus that's surfing Jesus. You ever see that picture? And the eyes in that one would follow me wherever you went. And I I remember as a kid going to the renewal center and seeing this picture of Jesus. And there his eyes were following him. I'd walk into the center and I'd be like, hey, Jesus, how's it going? And And his eyes would follow me as I would walk away. And so sure enough, I'm brought back to this memory of my childhood and I'm being encountered in my own drunkenness and anger that here Jesus is staring at me again. My response to him was, look away, I'm just a drunk, I'm a nobody, I'm a washed up football player. Just like Al Bundy and Married with Children, I'm washed up, there's nothing going for me. Look away. But he wouldn't look away, in part because it's a picture, in part because God's love for me is reckless. And he encountered me in that moment of my pain and my brokenness, and it reminds me today of the story of St. Peter from the Gospel of John. I'm so happy you brought up St. Peter. The Gospel of John chapter 21, this is, after, this is after the crucifixion, after the death of Jesus, after his resurrection. We see this scene in John chapter 21 where in scripture, it becomes the only written dialogue between Jesus and Peter after the resurrection. We know that, that Peter was around when Jesus arose from the dead. We know that he was around, but we don't have any record of a dialogue between the two of them. So this first dialogue comes on the heels of a brutal torture. A brutal torture. It comes on the heels of Peter denying Jesus, not once, not twice, but how many times? Three times. You know, I, I've had friends come and go in my life, and, and some of these friends I've had for a long time, my friends from back home, I, I talked to one the other day, and it's just like I, I never left. But friends in our lives, they, they come and go, but these these friends, where we just build up this massive friendship, that just for a short period of time, they're your lifelong friends. So some for some of the guys, one guy in particular, his name is Colin, a good Irishman, Colin Doyle. Uh, is uh, anyway. So Colin Doyle from Alberta, and I love the guy, and we were, we lived together, worked together for three years, and and when I talk to Colin, it's just like we never left. So I can imagine Peter and Jesus, these bros. These buddies that were that suffered together, cried together, laughed together, ate together, had a great times together for three years and Peter saying to Jesus, "I promise you, come hell or high water, I will never deny you, never deny you jesus you 're my man i got gotcha. you and what, is, what does Peter do Denies him so this scene that i 'm going to read to you briefly i 'm not going to read the whole thing in the interest of time, and it 's kind of boring to watch someone read. Um, This scene is the first encounter that Peter has with Jesus after his promise that he'll never deny, after his denial, which he knows that Jesus knows, because he knew Jesus. He knew who he was. This is the first scene. So they're fishing. The DNA of Peter meant that he was a great fisherman. Thousands of years for Peter to be born in that time. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. So here he is. He's fishing. And John, or the disciple that Jesus loved, says, hey, look over there. There's a fire on the shore. It's Jesus. It's the Lord. And Peter recognizes and and sees that it's, it's Jesus, his buddy, his friend, on the shore, making a charcoal fire. So what does Peter do? He gets his clothes on jumps into the lake, swims to meet Jesus at at the shore. The point of the charcoal fire is really interesting. A charcoal fire is the most common way to cook food in the ancient Near East. The most common way to cook food. And it's only ever mentioned in the entire Bible twice. Two times. This is the second time. The first time is when Peter denies Jesus. They're warming themselves at a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they say to Peter, hey, Peter, you know, you're, you're a friend of this guy, aren't you? You're, you're one of his friends. I saw you around. You guys were with him together at the temple. Yeah, I saw you. And what does Peter say at the charcoal fire? Never knew the guy. Didn't his best friend? If, if my buddy Colin was being tortured and I knew that his, his death was imminent and he was being beaten alive to almost to a pulp, and here I was denying that I ever knew the guy. And I had a chance to either suffer with him or save him. Man, I would, be, I would just feel awful. I would feel awful. So here Jesus is cooking this charcoal fire on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias. God is beautiful, you guys. The Sea of Tiberias... This area of the entire planet is the lowest point on all the planet that we can inhabit. The lowest, point on planet, the lowest point on planet Earth that we can be on is there. The lowest point of all of humanity is there where Jesus is cooking this charcoal fire. In the Jordan River where Jesus took on all of our sins and was baptized by the John, the, John the prophet. In the Jordan River, at the lowest point of all of humanity, at the lowest physical point of land on the Earth... That's where Jesus first encounters us publicly. Jesus is Emmanuel. And here he is meeting Peter at the charcoal fire on the lowest lowest place of the entire planet, right there. And what does he say to Peter in this moment? Does he say, get out of here, Peter? You betrayed me. Does he kick him to the curb? Does he say, get back in the boat? You know, they need you over there somewhere. Somebody needs you. What does he say? He eats with him, talks to him, calls him. Says, "Peter, feed my sheep." I believe in you, Peter. Feed my sheep. He calls Peter to a higher purpose, to a higher calling, at the point of his shame, at the point of this charcoal fire. And I, 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 I love that image of Jesus encountering us at the lowest point on the entire planet. Above, above the sea, the lowest point above sea level. That's where Jesus encounters all of humanity. That's where he encounters us at our lowest points. And it reminds me of another scene from the Old Testament in Ezekiel. You guys ever hear of the story of dry bones? You're familiar with that story? I love this story. And I, I love it because of this scene. The Valley of the Dry Bones, where, where God takes the prophet Ezekiel to this place in a vision. And he sees this valley full of dry bones. Now, something that's really neat is this word for valley is, the Hebrew word is, is bikah. And it means literally a wide valley between two mountains. There's two mountains that they, you could visibly see in this valley right there. And then, and then the scene of these dry bones is in the middle of these things. And in the middle of these things is where these dry bones are. And the Hebrew word for dry Is ashamed. This word that's being used, its primitive root is shame. These bones are dry, not because they're not only lacking water, but because they're ashamed. They're dry. They're 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 brittle. They're 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 afraid. Wherever we might be in our sins, that's where these bones are in our sins. And where Peter is when he encounters Jesus, he's there in his shame at the lowest point in the planet. Encountering Jesus at the very place where he sinned, where he denied him in the charcoal fire. So, at this place of the valley where God breathes new life, this word ruah, where breath is. Where else do we see that word in the Bible? In creation. Where God breathes his life into these bones and rises them out of their shame. In the valley. This picture of the seed, it's in a valley between two mountains. And there's lots of scripture verses where God takes us to the mountaintops, isn't there? God could have easily in this scene taken us out of the valley and risen us back on top of the mountain where we're supposed to be in this highest mountain. And great consolation and joy. Instead, he encounters us in the valleys of our shame. He encounters us at our charcoal fires. Wherever we feel the lowest, that's where Jesus is. He's encountering us. And what does he say to us? He says, I love you. I love you. I don't define you by your failings and your weaknesses. The world does, but I don't. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's what Jesus says to us at our charcoal fires. That's what he says to us in our valleys of our shame. And where he meets us there in our valley at our charcoal fires, he calls us to something new and greater than we were before. He breathes his life into us and makes us new creations in our valleys of shame. He doesn't shirk away from the source of our shame. He embraces us and he forgives us and he loves us because we're his children. So I think this, the second principle to rekindling any flame that God may have given us is in, being willing to encounter Jesus openly and honestly at our charcoal fires in the valleys of our shame which makes confession so beautiful. Confession, for us, is our charcoal fire. Whether it's pornography, whether it's anger, whether it's uh, wrath, I mean, I don't just mean anger, it's good, there's righteous anger, but I mean like wrath, spitefully hurting somebody because I'm angry with the person. Whatever kind of sin that we're in, Jesus was there in those moments. And he loves you still the same. So when we go to confession, it's so important for us not to be afraid to admit those moments in our lives. There might be a sin that you're you're trying to cover up that's 30 years old. Be brave, my dear brothers, and confess that sin at your charcoal fire today. Let all these burdens go and give it to Jesus. He's there to meet you at your fires He's there to meet you in your valley. At the lowest point of your life, that's where he is, waiting for you. The only thing that prevents us from encountering him in those moments is ourselves, is our shame. No, God, I can't show you this thing. No, it's too embarrassing. I can't show you. I can't. He sees it already. And he loves you. He loves you. Okay, fine. I was at that in that chapel, where that picture of Jesus was. You remember me mentioning that, that picture of Jesus, divine image, divine mercy. And um, I'm there, and Jesus is looking at me, staring at me, and and throughout that whole weekend, it was really beautiful. My heart started to get a little softer. I wasn't so hard anymore against being there, and I wasn't so angry anymore for being there. And and there's a really good environment. One of my rugby mates was there, we and he played football with me too, and. It was really surprising to see somebody else there with the same background. That was that was very encouraging to see. And it, on the last day of the retreat, the, one of the friars, he was, he was a priest, he said, I want everybody to close your eyes. Oh, pardon me, I missed the most important step, most important step. I can't believe I missed that. So I, I walked in on the last day of the retreat, right before Mass, I walk in at the beginning before they had their commencements. And, um, I look at the same picture of Jesus, and looking at the stained glass window, it was almost as if the sun was right behind it because the light was bright and it was facing, it was it was facing south, so it's not like it could have been right behind it, and uh, really neat. And uh, so the so the the stained glass window itself was brighter, the image was bigger and more penetrating, and it, and throughout the weekend I got a little softened up to talking to him. I would be sitting in the chapel looking at the stained glass and just kind of dialoguing a little bit with Jesus. Not really, just, just talking like with a buddy. And in that moment where this picture is brighter and bigger and more penetrating, it's, it's as if I could hear Jesus speak to me in the same way that you can hear my voice speak to you right now. And I heard him say, Kevin, I love you. Take up your cross and follow me. And it was in that very moment when I heard those words, Kevin, I love you, that that's what I was looking for all the, the party scene that I was entangled in, all the, whatever it was that I was doing at that time, everything that I was looking for was found in the heart of Jesus, who loves me, who, his heart that beats for me, and his heart that beats for every single one of you. This Jesus who met me in, my, in the lowest point of my life, up to that point, the lowest point of my spiritual life for sure, and he said, Kevin, I love you, and I'm calling you to do something different. I, I had no business being in there. I was a drunk, washed-up football player. I had, no busy, I had no business being there and here. Here God was meeting me there, meeting me where I was. This place I want to bring you guys to a scene in the scripture. We're going to go back to John chapter 21 with St. Peter. Now there's something that, that off, Peter often gets made fun of a lot. And um, I really like St. Peter. I think he's neat. It's cool that these two other gentlemen like St. Peter too. And there's one particular uh, line in this, in this chapter that's unusual, where Peter and the other disciples see Jesus with the charcoal fire. He's cooking some fish. And they're excited. And, and Peter just, it looks like he just gets his clothes on, really excited. It looks like he's not even thinking about it, and jumps in the water to go swim to be Jesus. And and Peter gets a bum rap for that. I think people make fun of him a lot. Oh, look at this idiot, putting his clothes on before the water. Who does that? You know, you get your you get your swimsuit on, then you go in the water. You take your clothes off, then you go in the water. That's the most logical thing. But look what Peter's doing. It says here, I'm just going to read this chapter, this this verse to you. It says that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, "It is the Lord." When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his clothes. For he was stripped for work and sprang into the sea. So not only was he putting on his clothes on to put on a jacket on, but he was already stripped for work and he sprung into the water. And we could sit there and we can make fun of this a little bit as much as we want, but it's something that we ourselves do on a moment-to-moment basis. In fact, this reminds me of another scene. Another scene from the book of Genesis, where Adam and Eve... <laughs> They eat the tree from the, fruit, the tree, they eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they sin and they meet God himself as walking in the garden and they're, and what are they they 're ashamed because they 're ashamed of their of their nakedness they become aware of their of their failings and they 've got to clothe themselves and hide them from god 's gaze because they 're going to meet their friend, this person whom they knew intimately up to that point, so they get themselves clothed and they encounter their God. Peter, who who is eager for an opportunity to, I'm presuming here, eager for an opportunity to make peace with his friend, to make peace with his brother, puts his clothes on. In the very similar way as Adam and Eve put clothes on before they met God. Very similar way. And we do that ourselves, don't we? And it's easy for us to sit here and point and mock St. Peter and say, oh man, look at that fool. See, that's why that guy never became a rabbi, because he puts his clothes on before jumping into the water. No, we do the same thing. We clothe ourselves with other things. We clothe ourselves with service work. The Knights of Columbus, we do such good stuff for people who need stuff. We really do, good, do a lot of good work. Look at what's happening with Ukraine. The fund that's been created just like that overnight. Almost $2 million plus. Overnight. That's your guys' work being done. Look at the stuff that you guys are doing here at St. Basil's. Creating the fund that you guys are working towards. Your family members and friends who are suffering in another country. Really quickly, overnight, you guys can pull this together. That's what we do in the Knights of Columbus. And Father McGivney is, not would be, he is so proud of the work that you guys are doing. His goal for us, in my view, has always been... Not just that we become really good people who serve really, really well, but that also his goal will be that we become great saints. That we become holy, just like Jesus is holy and calls us to be holy too. We have to somehow stop allowing our work to clothe us and hide, and allow us to hide our imperfections hiding our shame, hiding whatever it is that we're afraid of exposing to God, we have to stop clothing ourselves with stuff. And allowing ourselves to be just fully naked and open before God himself. Not fully naked and open for everybody else. We're not starting a newness calling here. But fully naked and open to God himself. When you go to confession, hold nothing back. Hold nothing back and don't be afraid of confession. This uh, Refuse God Nothing is sort of a, it's, it's a quote, a very popular quote. But the original title for this talk was The Only True Dialogue. And it comes from, oh, I don't know if my recording is picking me up. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It comes from a quote from, uh, from uh, Catherine Doherty, the foundress of Madonna House. And she was talking to some seminarians, as she often did. And she had them over at her household. I don't know the whole routine. Peter would know this routine better than I did. But in this particular talk that's recorded, uh, she was talking to some seminarians. And she was talking there. And um, I got the opportunity to listen to it because when I was in the seminary, I was with a group called Companions of the Cross in Ontario, outside of Ottawa. And this formation household that I was in at the time was right in Cumbermere, where um, Madonna House is. And so they would come over and we'd dialogue and fellowship with them quite a bit. And they let us listen to this recording of Catherine Doherty talking to some seminarians. And the one line that stuck out to me was this. The only true dialogue is the one between two crucified persons. I want to say that again because that's a lot for me personally. I don't know about you guys, but for me personally, it's a lot for me to unpack. The only true dialogue is the one between two crucified persons. So, for her, that has a twofold meaning. It has a twofold meaning not just to other people, that we become uh, open and ready to receive whoever needs help, that we're there for them, that we can lay down our lives for the other person. Just like you guys are doing for your brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Just like you guys do for the Coach for Kids program, clothing people who do not have clothing. Just like you do, Terry Shelley, all this great work that he does with the Special Olympics. You know? Being crucified for these kids who need us, who need the work that we do. But it's also being crucified with our Lord Jesus and being crucified with him in a dialogue with him and holding nothing back. Because to be crucified isn't just this nicey, nicey thing where you're standing there with all your clothes on. Your nakedness is laid bare. You're made to be humiliated and you're there and there's nothing, nothing nothing you can use to hide yourself from other people's gaze. And the goal here isn't to become humiliated But the goal here is to hold nothing back in your dialogue with God. If you find that somehow your service work has become a crutch, a a thing to hide some parts of your life from, change how you do your service work. If you find somehow that your prayers that you're doing are, are ways to hide the uncomfortableness inside, change how you're doing your prayers. Don't stop those things. We need to do those things as baptized Christians. That's our duty. But maybe change how you see them encounter Jesus crucified in your prayers, in your moments of prayer, and say, Jesus, here I am. I'm going to refuse you nothing. I'm not going to hold anything back. I, uh, this is my weakness. Jesus, I need you to help me in my weakness. I'm really hurt, Jesus. I don't know how to deal with this pain. Whatever it is, hold nothing back. Because Jesus died for you to set you free from these things. He died, he died for you to redeem you from your sins, to redeem you from your pain, to redeem you from your hardship. Because he loves you. And, and I know this next phrase has got some, got some flack over the past few years, in the, since, I mean, for my knowledge anyway. But it really is real that if you were the only person on earth, Jesus would have died for you all the same. He would have become born as a human being just like you if you were the only person on earth. And he would do it because he is your personal Jesus. He is your personal Savior. He died for us collectively, but he's your personal Savior. Are you going to accept him as your Savior? We've been baptized, which is awesome. We've been confirmed for Ukrainians. You got it all at once, which is great. But when we experience those sacraments over and over again, are we really surrendering our lives to Jesus in a new way? Because that's his call for us. Every time that we encounter Jesus, it's a new moment to start over again. Catherine, Catherine Doherty, another favorite quote that I have from her, is every moment is a moment to begin again. Every moment. So even if you've done that sin over and over and over again, I overheard somebody say the same thing that's on my heart, I go to confession, I say the same thing all the time. I do the same thing. I'm sure all of us do. I, we all do the same things. It doesn't matter how many times you've fallen into pornography or lust or gossip or slander or anger, like wrath, anger, or whatever it is that you're you're struggling with, God is there ready. He's crucified for you. He's there ready, willing to receive you as his friend. We just got to stop pretending that we're not hurt, that we're not broken, that we're not weak. We need to do that. So that Jesus, our, our Savior, can really redeem us from the inside and out. So next time you think of Peter putting his clothes on before the water, make it remind yourself of, your own, of our own uh, habit to hide our imperfections. We live in a performance-driven world, and, but God isn't performance-driven. God loves you. No matter what you've done or continue to do or always do, he loves you because you're not defined by your weaknesses and your failings. You're defined by your father's love for you. You just got to say yes just got to say yes. Yes, Jesus, I'm, I'm nervous to let, let everything bear. I'm nervous to let you into this part of my life. I'm nervous, Jesus, but yes, Jesus, I want you in there. The third principle of rekindling this flame that God has given us is refusing him nothing and not holding anything back in your dialogue with him and to give him all of your life. Not just the religious bits, but your social bits too. And your interior stuff as well. Everything. Let him be Lord of everything. Everything.